Hello and welcome to A World to Win, a podcast from Tribune magazine. I'm Grace Blakely, bringing you your weekly dose of socialist news, theory and action from around the world. This week, I'm joined by Andy Burnham, former Labour MP and current Labour Mayor of Greater Manchester. We talk about the impact that COVID-19 has had on the north of England, what cities like Manchester are doing to tackle climate breakdown and the housing crisis, and why the left needs to embrace a socialist devolution agenda. As always, a shout out to our amazing patrons. Your support has been critical for covering the costs of producing the podcast. Without your help, we wouldn't be able to continue to bring you these amazing interviews with such brilliant guests. If you've been considering becoming a patron for a while now but haven't gotten around to it, please consider doing so now. Just hit pause and head over to patreon.com slash a world to win pod or check the show notes for a link. If you become a patron, you'll get access to exclusive content, including the full hour-long episode of this interview and full-length interviews with figures like Naomi Klein and Dr. Cornell West, as well as a chance to influence the future direction of the show and exclusive offers on merch, my forthcoming books and subscriptions to Tribune. If you want to support the show in another way, please do give us a rating on iTunes to keep us up in the charts and share your favourite episodes on social media tagging at a world to win pod on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram. A big thank you, as always, to the Lippman Miliband Trust for awarding us the grant funding we've needed to bring you these episodes. You can follow them on Twitter at Lippman Miliband. And another big thank you to Reverend and the Makers, who have let us use their track, Heavyweight Champion of the World, as our intro and outro music. Now, here is Andy Burnham on the impact of COVID-19 on the North and what he's been doing to try and alleviate it. Hello, Andy Burnham. Thank you so much for joining me on A World to Win. Well, thanks for inviting me to be on, Grace. Great to be with you. So we're going to kick off the show, as usual, by discussing a couple of news stories that have been in the headlines this week. Um, So one of them we've got from BBC News here. It says, coronavirus, Northern England, worst hit by pandemic. So, I mean, obviously, Andy, you've been doing a lot to try and make sure that the interests of of the people in, in Manchester are protected as the government has imposed all these different lockdowns in different parts of the country. Does this surprise you that the North has been hardest hit or is this, you know, very obvious? Mm, no, it it's kind of confirms what we've been saying, Grace, all, all year. You know, I think it was February where Michael Marmot, you know, the expert on health inequalities, was reporting 10 years on and was just saying how things had gone backwards, that people's work had got worse, housing had got worse, the effects of austerity, to be honest, on, on the country. And then literally the pandemic hit. So, you know, in that weak position that the North was in, we then get the challenge of COVID and... Um, We've been saying all year that it's not just the north, but it's the poorest communities within the north that have been um, have been hardest hit. Hardest hit from a health point of view, but also from an economic point of view. And the report from the Northern Health Science Alliance, I think, has said the same thing. So you just got to hope that um, people are paying attention to what they're saying in in Whitehall. I mean, not sure they are, but um, you know, I, I I hope live in hope. You have to live in hope, don't you? Yeah. So we've got a story from the FT here saying pressure grows to support excluded self-employed. And this comes as excluded UK have been kind of pushing their campaign to make sure that people who currently aren't getting support by the furlough scheme being left out of that safety net are, you know, taken into account by the government. And I know that you've been doing some work with them as well. And so do you want to talk to us a little bit about that? Yes, I think this is a bit of a hidden injustice, actually. So the government has made some you know, big interventions for people who are employed, so the furlough scheme, and although 
it took a lot of pushing. They eventually have extended that at 80%. They've helped people who are self-employed, but it was clear back in April that they were leaving quite big gaps in the support that they were providing. And probably this was kind of hitting people who probably, I would say, women disproportionately, young people uh, disproportionately, people employed as as freelancers or people who were newly self-employed were just shut out uh, of support. Actually, people who were new starters at their um, their companies, if they've got a new job this year, all of a sudden were shut out of, of support. And then you have people who might run their own company who would have paid themselves out of dividends. I mean, it sounds grand as though they paid a lot of money, but often they're not. You know, they might be a mobile hairdresser or something or a plumber or whatever. So there's been a lot of people just completely shut out. And the unfairness of that is, is pretty... Um, stark isn't it you know you're just completely frozen out just by the nature of the way you are making your living so you know how can you say well these taxpayers get help but these ones just get left it really um is wrong and tonight actually steve rotherham and and myself we're holding a an event in the northwest just to let them tell their stories Mm. so i think they've got under the radar because they're not kind of understood what category these people fall into and we just want them to tell their stories so people can see the injustice. So I'm glad it's now getting the attention that it um, that, that it needs. Yeah, I mean, that's so important, that point about people telling their stories, because it's yeah. not going to show up in the economic statistics. So, you know, people aren't necessarily going to pay attention to it, but it will actually cause quite a lot of suffering for a lot of people. I think that's interesting as well that many of those people are now going to be relying on universal credit. And actually, it's shown up just how inadequate that is just for allowing people to kind of make ends meet during very predictable and very frequent crises like this one. Absolutely. Because when we were having the whole argument with the government about them paying a furlough for people who work in pubs or bookmakers or bingo halls here when the whole tier three debate was happening, we were saying, well, actually, universal credit doesn't help those people for five weeks because that's the average time that people have to wait. And that is enough to um, plunge people into into a crisis with their rent or with just their daily outgoings you know they, they they can't cope for five weeks and that's a problem with universal credit that continues isn't it mm. but also many of these people can't access uh, universal credit either and i think they get infuriated you know where they see ministers in parliament just saying oh this this and this and universal credit that and it, and it not match up to the reality of the position that they that they find themselves in and you know as many of them now look towards christmas and they just think well i've had a year where they've given me nothing and now I'm going into Christmas with nothing. It must be absolutely um, devastating, actually, for those for those people. So they need a voice. And it's, if anything, I feel a bit bad that we've taken so long to give them a voice and give them a platform. But anyway, we are we are doing that now. And the government has kind of encouraged people to go down this path of, you know, yeah. make, running their own company and uh, you know perhaps being a more freelancer. So mm. they sh- they shouldn't just neglect those people who've done that. They should they should support them of all people. Yeah, completely agree. Another group of people who have been really mistreated over the course of uh, of the pandemic has been students. So yes, university students, but also students, you know, throughout the school system have struggled quite a lot. And we've got this story here from Sky, which is coronavirus, Wales scraps GCSE, AS and A-level exams for 2021 to ensure fairness. Do you think that's the right approach? Do you think that's the, pro- the approach that the rest of the UK should be taking? I do, Grace. I, I think the uh, Welsh Labour governments have got it right, and I think they've got a lot right during this crisis. And um, I hope Westminster will take note and listen to what their 
saying because I'm not sure we've got the approach, well, we haven't got the approach right in England. So there's this sort of push in England, oh no, exams have got to kind of uh, happen, or maybe three weeks later, but but we need the um, back to the traditional exam season. Well, if that happens, I can tell you for certain that there will be thousands, no, tens of thousands of young people in the northwest of England who will be disadvantaged for a lifetime by being forced into a traditional exam season. Why? Because the evidence shows they have been out of school more than their counterparts in other parts of the country. So therefore, exams in England in summer 2021 cannot be a level playing field because kids will be going into those exam halls sitting down, some who have been in school for many more days than others, you know, sitting down at the same time to take those exams. So it can't be fair, can't possibly be fair. And I've got principals and heads coming to me saying, look, you know, GCSEs and A-levels have, as a minimum, they need to be a mixture of a basic exam and assessment, but really there should be more assessment than, than exam if we're going to level up that playing field. So I don't think we are where we need to be. And this will be another issue that myself, Steve Rotherham and others will be speaking out, out upon because the North has been hit harder, as we've heard this week. Therefore, kids in areas where the cases are highest have been out of school more than people elsewhere. They tend to be the poorest parts of the country. And yet we're saying that they just go into an exam system like anyone else. Well, no, that, that would be so unjust. And it really needs to be, um, it's an issue we need to come back and back to, I think, until it's um, until it's properly sorted out. Mm. Um, finally, we've got this story that I wanted to chat to you about um, from Labour List. Labour challenges government to create 400,000 new jobs in green recovery. And this obviously comes on the back of the work of Ed Miliband and, and Annalise Dodds, uh, who are kind of, t- it seems, trying to take forward some of that idea of the Green New Deal into a context where it would be more relevant than ever. Um, you know, we, we're going to need some sort of recovery package. Making it a green recovery package makes sense. We know that green stimulus programmes create three times as many jobs as brown ones. So I'm wondering what you think of that. And also, you know, how can what can the role of mayors be in in rolling something out like this? I think it's really uh, positive to see the party uh, talking about this, and obviously it builds on I think what Rebecca Long Bailey was saying when she was shadow business secretary. It's obvious to me that a green recovery from COVID is what we need because we need to create jobs, and there are jobs, thousands of jobs that will be needed if we're going to meet our commitments to be zero carbon. So I have a target in Greater Manchester of a zero carbon city region by 2038. If we're to get there, we will need to retrofit every single property in the city region. And I'm told that will require a workforce of thousands and it will need to start pretty much straight away. So that is a job creation opportunity that is literally staring us in the face It's the right thing to prioritise coming out of this uh, crisis. And obviously we've got the COP in Glasgow next year and Mm. the UK needs to sort of, you know, finally show ourselves in a a better light, if you like, to the world about the things, the positive things that we're we're doing. So, yeah, I just think that is absolutely the place to be be pointing. I do have a hope that in 100 years' time, you know, 2120, people will look back at this time of this pandemic and say, actually, you know what? 
when they came out of it, that was a moment that they accelerated towards a zero carbon planet. I actually think that will happen because I think around the world, people will be thinking the same thing. We need to create jobs. We need to create a stimulus here. Right. The green economy is the obvious place to look. I think this is where devolution can help, Grace, as well, in terms of it's quite natural for us to say, right, we want to go further. We want to go faster. You know, we want to be a green leader. But actually, that will help UK as a whole meet the target of 2050. So hopefully this is a moment that uh, the government will properly embrace devolution and levelling up. But we will see. Let's hope so. Right, we're now going to go into uh, the main body of the interview. And the question that I ask all of my guests, first off, is how did you become a socialist? And for you as well, that's kind of how did you get into politics and what made you decide to run for mayor? People may have heard me say this before, but it was growing up um, between Liverpool and Manchester in the 1980s um, in a kind of pretty tough era, really, um, if if I look back to it. I remember... You'll be way too young, but there was something on the television called Boys and the Black Stuff, which was about people in Liverpool struggling, couldn't find work. You know, it was politics was there even when I was like in my early teens. You know, it just was around you. People, you just were aware of it. Um, I grew up in the area where I ultimately became to represent, which was the Lee area, a mining area. Then, so we had the miner strike in that period, and I was at school with a lot of people whose dads were miners, and um, I remember all of that very vividly, talking to them about about all of that. So I was kind of, you know, in some ways, I suppose the 80s was a process of slow radicalisation, I guess. You know, you're just kind of hearing these things, and one thing was adding to another. Earlier on, there was sort of Moss Side and Toxteth and all of those issues, and all of that was kind of stuff that was getting close close to home, but wasn't quite directly uh, you know in in my sort of life but then late 80s um I was at university middle of my first year all of my friends back at home Liverpool supporters FA Cup semi-final they all go there everything people know what happened people just traumatized and then obviously all the slurs start began so I guess for me living through the 80s you know this place where I grew up was just Politics was everywhere you looked and the injustice of the times was everywhere you looked. You couldn't escape it. Mm. And I, um, yeah, I became a socialist at that time. You know, I, I kind of, the really odd thing for me was I kind of went to a sort of comprehensive here, but then ended up at Cambridge. And then that for me, I suppose, you know, I was, I was seeing all this stuff at home. And then I went to university and thought, my God, there's a, there's a totally different world here. And I couldn't really relate those two worlds. It took me a long time to sort of feel comfortable in the Cambridge world, you know, know, you know. And so I guess it was all of that, both the unfairness and the injustice of what I could see happening to people I knew and the place where I grew up. But at the same time, being conscious that a completely different world was out there as well. To use the, the title of the podcast, another a world, a world to to win. I don't know if it was a world to win. It was a sort of world I couldn't even get my head around it when I first went there. Um, so I think Britain has always been two worlds. I think you know, um, and it still is. And that I guess all of that experience was what sort of did I, it radicalised me. I guess in in my in my teenage years and um, took me very much into politics and then into the journey I had as a a politician and an MP. And so what made you decide to go from, you know, being an MP, a successful one by all accounts, into running for mayor under the kind of new 
combined authorities that were that were created fairly recently? What made you want to make that that jump? It's a good question. I mean, I guess I, I suppose there were things I look back on with pride, but I look back on you, know, you say it was a successful one at times, not always, of course, and you know you, you make mistakes in a in a parliamentary career. Um, I don't know. I look back on my I was sixteen years in Westminster, and it was a a kind of a, a strange journey, really, where I kind of slowly kind of fell out of love with the place mm. um, because of what it does to you when you're in there. It's a, a strange place, a strange world. And I think in the end, people get lost. The longer people spend there, the more they lose why they went there. And I've said this, you know, before, but I feel this with a passion. You know, Westminster makes a fraud out of people because this whole construct of it, if you want to kind of get on and be a team player and you know, climb the pole and all of that, you have to do things that you don't kind of fully agree with. You mm. have to say things that, you know, don't really reflect your your kind of beliefs and vote in ways that make you do the same. And, um, you know, it takes you a while to sort of work that out, you know, about what this is, how this world is sort of taking you away from, you know what you're all what you're all about, and um, for me, the turning point in my life was going to Anfield in 2009. You know, I was representing a government that had to be there because of my own personal connection to the issue, but I knew I was representing a government that had nothing to say to the people there. Mm. And I kind of, you know, I kind of had come to a point where I was thinking, well, what am I? Why am I doing? What, what am I doing here? Who am I doing this for? And I guess that was a change point. Really, I, I kind of changed my whole view of things at that at that point and I began a real sort of departure from the Westminster sort of culture and the world and the the way it works down there and almost became more of an outsider I guess you know I was on a path out pretty much from that point and um, you know obviously then I ran for the leadership in 2015 and fully understand why I lost but I was trying to say this in not a particularly effective way you know that Labour was London centric it was kind of you know, not enough reflective of mm. the sort of um, the, the, the regions and particularly the north. And um, it, in the end, on the other side of that, I just thought, well, now is the time probably for me to sort of step outside of this and sort of build a different approach to to, to politics from the outside that, that is more suited to what I'm trying to do. You know, you've certainly made a really, you know, big platform and, and taken on the leadership role that you have in Manchester in you know a, a really amazing way especially when you're thinking about the fact that that's a position that you've stepped into which didn't really exist before and I think especially over the course of the pandemic that leadership that you were showing in Manchester when you were you know pushing back against the government was I think something that a lot of people in the Labour Party were looking at and thinking we need a little bit more of that. Well I, I hope the left can now really embrace devolution I, you know I think it's always mm. had a slightly ambivalent view of it but I don't see how you advance progressive left politics purely through Westminster. Yeah. Because by definition, it's going to be a bit of a pendulum situation where you know, maybe it's, you're in for a bit and then you're out. I think devolution to the English regions and English cities offers a much better opportunity to entrench um, progressive ideas. Because if you look at the, the history of cities like Liverpool, <clears throat> Liverpool, Manchester, Birmingham to, to a degree, a slightly lesser extent, but still, if you look at um, Newcastle, Leeds, you know, you have long-term Labour administrations, but 
not with the power that they need yeah. to really change things. And if you think about a world where that was different, where they had proper power to change things, I think you can see how you could create a new consensus in the country about, about things that we all would want to see. And I noticed something, you know, when, when I left. Firstly, it was liberating just to be away from the party whip, you know, just to be, and I've always, you know, mm. I, I do call it as I see it, and I don't take a sort of line off anybody anymore. I, I, I know I very much sort of work in that way. But the key thing about devolution is it's so rooted in place and not necessarily always sort of the first sort of thing about party loyalty. And place gives sort of creates a legitimacy that is is stronger than party. And it also allows people to sort of coalesce more. You know, it's a more unifying sort of force than, than uh, party is. Mm. And it therefore creates things that can last longer, I think, and can carry more people with them. So I just do think devolution offers the left a much better route to entrenching some of the ideas that we that we have, particularly in the big cities, which are the places that often set uh, the opinions of people across across the country. So, you know, I, I do hope that people might say, you know what, this is probably worth worth looking at. It can give people a voice to challenge the government. Mm. If you look back to the 80s, local yeah. government gave people a voice to challenge the government, and it is probably doing the same again now. But it's more about not just challenge. I think it's about what you can do with the mm. power, you know, is, is the exciting bit. Yeah, no, I completely agree with you about um, about devolution, actually. I think it's really important to um, the left to have something to say about democracy, especially when so many people feel shut out of these institutions. But also, I think there's a kind of, there is a legitimate criticism of, you know, the way in which devolution was done, which was obviously all part of kind of George Osborne's Northern powerhouse agenda. And often the way that he talked about it seemed like he was more focused on, you know, just doing like public private partnerships with big business and big developers and, uh, and yeah, kind of, you know, creating opportunities for those, those entities to, to profit from this process rather than necessarily focusing on, the kind of lived experience of people in these cities and, you know, really deepening democracy and making sure that their voices were being heard. So do you think that the devolution process was done in the right way? And if not, what do you think needs to change about, um, yeah, about, about devolution? What do you think, I suppose, a kind of a labour devolution process would look like within England? Yeah, I think, I, I think, you know, I always try and be fair. I think to be, to be fair, Osborne spoke more, about the North and devolution than some of the chancellors that, that I serve with in, uh, <laughs> in government. Um, but you are absolutely right to characterise it in the way that you did, you know, quite superficial, very economic focused. Whereas if you look at Steve in Liverpool, Dan Jarvis, Jamie up in the North East, we're all doing much more on the social side. Well, we're doing both, mm-hmm. but, you know, we, we, we don't just see it as a, as a narrow economic role. I think at the moment it's become begging bowl devolution is the way I would describe it, in that you're constantly trying to curry for, oh, can we lobby for this bit of money for this or lobby for this bit of money for that? And as I saw a few weeks ago when I stood up to the government and said, look, I'm not accepting a 67% furlough for people who work in in, um, low-paid jobs in Greater Manchester, immediately they started briefing the papers saying, oh, they're going to cancel mayors and cancel devolution. So, you know, they can't... (laughs) 
if Westminster and Whitehall are so sort of immature that they can't handle anything sort of sort of speaking up against what they're trying to do, well, maybe that tells you that devolution is really, really needed because mm. they need that type of they need that type of challenge. But I, I think Labour's um, version should be it should be true devolution, you know, true devolution that comes with um, true accountability. Mm. So we have more ability to raise funding ourselves um, uh, at local, a local level, but then we will be held more to account then by, by the people in, in that area. More ability for us to say, you know what, we're going to have a real living wage in, in Greater Manchester and um, put in place policies to, to achieve it. We're going to regulate private rented uh, housing in Greater Manchester and again, you know, have powers that we can draw down and use if we choose to, to, to use them. So, you know, I, I think if you, if you think about Steve in Liverpool, as people know, my, 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 um, my, my great friend in politics, if the two of us were really sort of putting in place kind of policies that we kind of shared across the two city regions, you can imagine how that would yeah. be a powerhouse for social reform mm. down that M62 corridor where we are doing things. It would change politics, I think, in the rest of England if we really could crack on with the things that we think need, uh, need to be done. Yeah. You mentioned uh, housing there and, you know, the housing crisis is, is such an issue in Manchester and has particularly become so over um, over the last decade. I had Raquel Rolnick on the show, who was the former UN Special Rapporteur on Adequate Housing. And she'd kind of spoken about this in her report back when she came over in 2014 about, you know, both the problems in the private rented sector in London, but also increasingly in cities like Manchester. And obviously, you will, homelessness has become a big issue and you made that a central part of your campaign. What do you think needs to be done about the housing crisis in Manchester and indeed the homelessness, homelessness crisis? And what have you been trying to do to kind of tackle those issues? I, um, I think to answer your question in, the, in the, the sort of most fundamental way, I think good, safe, affordable housing needs to be made a human right in yeah. UK law. You know, that's without getting into all the technical things I could have said in answer to your question. I think it's that fundamental. You know, go back to the post-war Labour government. They understood the absolutely sort of um, intrinsic connection between health and housing. Mm. You know, the two things are in many ways the same thing. Without good housing, you don't really have anything, certainly not health. And I've been to Finland in this job because I was really fascinated about what they were doing with homelessness. And there was all of this talk of housing first, and it was kind of portrayed to me as though it was a project to deal with homelessness, which in some ways it is. But when I got to Finland, I really discovered that housing first is more of a national philosophy Mm. that all of the big policy departments have to sign up to. The idea being that unless people, less citizens have good housing, they are not going to have a good life. You know, they can't have a good education if kids are going back to sort of, you know, cold, damp, uh, you know, uh, horrible housing. You know, nobody can have good health, really, unless they've got good housing. And we've seen that during this pandemic, haven't we, where we've got overcrowded housing, people can't self-isolate yeah. and all of the damage that that, that that does. And I just think housing first is such a powerful philosophy that is so true because the costs of not giving people good housing are actually picked up in other ways, you know, in, in terms of the cost of homelessness with people, serious mental health challenges or people going into A&E because their, their health 
deteriorate so much. In when I came in as mayor in, in Greater Manchester, I, I was trying to find ways of funding a scheme I call a bed every night. You know, I was kind of saying that we should just have enough provision to give everybody somewhere to go every single night. And I was thought I thought, well, I'll knock on the door of the NHS. And I really did I really come back to this because it it was kind of a conversation that kind of I think kind of illustrates the change we, we need to see more broadly across the country. I was saying to them, look, you know, you should contribute to this scheme because if people are in those places, mm. their health will be improving literally the minute they walk through through the door. And the answer was like, no, 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 we, we don't fund shelters. That's not, 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 not our budget. And I, said, I remember saying to someone, said, well, look, you're going to walk out of my office now and you're going to go out in the street and you're going to be walking past people whose health is visibly deteriorating before your eyes and you're saying that that is nothing to do with the national health service you'll kind of throw all of this money at smoking cessation or you know obesity drives or all of that's fine but you're saying that you've got no responsibility for that and i remember it was kind of a bit i'm concerned well okay and that we that we made a, a breakthrough and the health service now do fund uh, a bed every night in greater manchester and it's it's a powerful Kind of just in a small way, but it's a powerful um, sort of driver for change, maybe, you know, with, um, with us embracing a sort of totally different approach to, um, to housing in this country. Housing is health, and, and we need to see it in that way. You mentioned there some of the kind of, you know, budget constraints that you will obviously have been facing and that so many areas of the public sector have been facing um, since the start of austerity. But as you'll probably know, like councils and um, combined authorities have, I guess, forced to be become a bit more creative with policy as a result of that. And the, perhaps the best known example of this on the left at the moment is is Preston, which is, you know, close to GM and has done this, this model of kind of community wealth building, where it's trying to do exactly what you were just saying, bring together anchor institutions, institutions that can't move to reorganize procurement, to reorganize spending, uh, to, uh, you know, basically make sure that local money resources are kind of raised and kept locally in order to improve the lives of local people. Do you think there's a potential to make that work at a city region level? And yeah, is that something that you would think would be a a viable route for, for Manchester? I I really do. I think Matthew, uh, leader of Preston city council is really onto something community wealth building you know make the money that Preston Council has you know work for the community work harder uh, minimize the spend that just goes out and evaporates into dividends for people who live miles miles away from Preston you know my my brother is the principal of a sixth form college in Preston and he you know I, I've kind of got his in, insight into some of the stuff that's going on there and he, he talks about it being really empowering uh, mm-hmm. some of the things that the council uh, has done so we've taken um, uh, close interest in what they're doing. And um, from my point of view, I've been asking, well, what, what can we do to make public funds work harder for the people of Greater Manchester? One of the things that we are looking, partly inspired by the Preston model, is linking something that we've got called the Good Employment Charter, which, amongst other things, talks of a real living wage. So we've just taken a decision to link that to all public procurement in Greater Manchester. Oh, so. Wow. Yeah, so, uh, you know, it, it doesn't mean you've got to be a registered good employer to get a contract. What it means is if you are, you will get a waiting when that contract is is awarded. And I think, you know, the law allows all of this under the social value uh, framework. And I think councils of the left aren't using it enough. 
you know, Salford, Manchester, you know, councils in my part of the world do loads of innovative things. But actually across the board, are Labour councils doing enough? I think we could do more. Mm. Um, and Matthew, I think, has um, really led, led the way, really, with some of that thinking. Yeah, totally. Another thing that's really important for the left today, and I'll, I'll finish here because I know that you are you're time constrained, as you've just been saying, <laughs> you've got a lot to do. Um, but another thing that's really important at the moment is, is internationalism. Uh, we face so many global challenges from, you know, climate change to the pandemic. How are you trying to link up Greater Manchester with cities and with mayors around the world? And do you think that mayors can forge links between states and between people, even when governments perhaps seem less inclined to do so. You know, it's amazing the mayor's network around the world, you know. You know, it's, it's not always like trips and all of that, so don't, think, don't see it that way. But there is so much contact between um, uh, mayors in Zoom and all this kind of thing. I was on a thing last night with the, the mayor of Bogota, who she's brilliant. Oh, yeah. I mean, you know, completely inspirational. Mm-hmm. And it's... It's just fascinating. Cities kind of have so much in common wherever they are in the world. And whenever mayors are together, we all talk the same language. And another one I've got to know fairly well is Ada Colau, who's the mayor of Barcelona. Ah. She was a housing activist. And, Mm. you know, again, I took quite a lot of inspiration from some of the things she's done. Raymond Olsen, the mayor of Oslo, brilliant, you know, really fantastic progressive policy. So, and you know what? Because we haven't embraced evolution, English cities are sort of shut out of this progressive network and we need to get in it and, you know, get involved in it and take inspiration from it. So, yeah, I think there's so much potential. And just to give you an, an example of how we might kind of, um, you know, contribute to sort of rebuilding bridges, people to the people, Steve Rotherham and I are um, planning a, a joint mission delegation to Ireland next year. Mm. You know, Ireland is critical to us, both, Liverpool, but also, you know, investment that we both got uh, coming out of the Republic of Ireland. So, you know, we're determined that we're not going to let all of the Brexit nonsense sort of cut across um, our relationship with um, uh, with Southern Ireland. So we're, we're both heading out there. We've got a, a meeting next week with Leo Varadka to, um, uh, to plan the trip. And um, I think, you know, we're going to try and bring our football clubs with us, which, you know, we're trying to do our own diplomacy, if you know what I mean, you know, yeah. Northwest diplomacy. And I think, yeah, I think it's a different track, isn't it? We, why should we as a country always be seen through our embassies or foreign office, you know? And does that speak for you? Does it speak for, for people here? No. I think people to people stuff is the way to go. You're asking a really good question. And I think on climate particularly, Grace, the mayors around the world are the most progressive force. In the US, when Trump kind of took them out of the Paris uh, Accord or started to plan for that. I don't know if you know this, but the Convention of US Mayors voted straight back in. And that tells you how, you know, mayors can be a check and balance against a a very sort of uh, right-wing government. So, yeah, that's another string to our bow, hopefully, that makes the case even stronger. Thank you so much for joining me on A World to Win, Andy Burnham. You certainly made a very strong case for uh, the left to embrace devolution, which I hope everyone else gets on board with. Many thanks, Grace. Great to be on. And um, I think there is a world to win out there. Absolutely.